My name is Nicola, and you're watching Singularity 101. Today, my guest on the show will be David Ettinger. Hi, David, and thanks very much for having us as your guest at the Cryonics Institute near Detroit, Michigan. Thanks for coming by. Fantastic. David, let me uh, ask you, first of all, to begin our conversation perhaps by introducing yourself a little bit, what you do and uh, what the mission of the Cryonics Institute is. Okay, well, let me talk about the Cryonics Institute first and me second. That's the more important thing. Uh, the Cryonics Institute is a nonprofit membership organization composed of people who believe that uh, in the future we're going to have radical improvements in medical technology. And for those of us who aren't going to be around far in the future when that happens, or perhaps nearer, but we don't know for sure, for those of us who aren't going to be around, we need something to help us if we die soon and affect an ambulance of the future. And we believe that cryonics, freezing people immediately after legal death, gives us a real chance to come back and benefit from that future technology. And as to why I'm involved in cryonics, it's probably an accident of birth. Uh, my father, Robert Ettinger, was the founder of the cryonics movement, wrote a book called The Prospect of Immortality, which introduced the idea in 1963. So I grew up with the cryonics idea in fact, when the first freezing occurred of Dr. James Bedford, my father was out in California helping out, and I ended up doing television interviews at the age of 15, talking about cryonics. So uh, I was pretty well-versed in it at that time. Um, but this is a commitment that I have. Uh, my mother and my father and my grandmother are frozen here at CI. And so I, like other CI members, um, am committed to working so that they will have a chance to come back. And me too, when the time comes. That's absolutely fascinating. So in a way, you could say that this is this was, and kind of still is, a family affair to you, because first that idea was brought to you within the family. Mm -hmm. And then now you can say that you brought your family within the idea, or within the cryonics sort of community, and in long-term storage. I think that's right, though. It's not me. My father when he founded uh, the Cryonics Institute, he founded it as an organization to help preserve him and his family. And, and that's what it's been for him and for other people who were founders of CI. We have several members on our board of, director, board of directors who have uh, family members who were frozen here. And so our, really our whole organization is people who want to preserve themselves and preserve their family members and hope like I do to see them again. Mm -hmm. And, and then let me ask you, what is your function, if you have one, within the structure of the Cryonics Institute? I don't have a formal position. I'm, I'm the lawyer to the organization. Mm -hmm. That's my day job, and uh, that's what I do for CI. Uh, and I'm an advisor to the organization, um, sometimes a spokesperson. Um, like in this case. Like in this case. I've been involved in cryonics for so long that uh, I guess I've learned something about it along the way. Yes, and I, I have to say that as part of my preparation for our conversation mm -hmm. today, I actually went and I read your father's original 1963 or 4 book, 
the prospect for immortality, which is a gap in my education that I should have filled a long time ago, but I use this as an excuse to do it right now. And I have to say, I was kind of fascinated that he had the sort of the foresight 50 years ago to come up with some of those ideas that we're still struggling with today. So isn't that amazing? And, and I mean, I would feel pretty proud if my dad did something like that. Oh, I think my father was a great man. Um, not as recognized as he should be. Uh, I would but, say but, so, yes. But, but, you know, the payoff is still to come. He didn't do it to uh, try to become famous. He did it to try to preserve himself and his family. And um, uh, we certainly hope and, uh, that that's going to work and believe there's a very good chance that's going to work. My father actually came up with the Kranich's idea in the late 1940s. Uh, he was seriously wounded in World War II. His life was saved only because of brand new medical technology at the time, which kind of the theme of cryonics came up early in his life. If it had been a couple years earlier, he would have died. Mm -hmm. uh, and he spent four years in hospitals and did a lot of reading and read about the initial pioneering research in cryobiology and wrote a little bit about it in the form of a published science fiction story mm -hmm. uh, at that time. Um, and he thought, this is an obvious idea, people are going to be proposing it. He was in his 30s, starting his career, and thought, I don't need to worry about it. This will get done by the time I'm older. And then by around 1959, 1960, he looked around and nobody was proposing it. And he thought, I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. He wrote his book. His book at the time made a fairly significant splash. My father did a lot of television appearances. He was on, you know, the Johnny Carson show about eight times, for example, but nobody took that next step, which he was assuming others would do, and started a Kranich's organization. Mm -hmm. So in 1976, he said, I guess I've got to do that too, and he did that. So my father's course all along was, this is something that makes obvious sense. This is something that I want for my family and for myself, and if nobody else is going to do it, I'm going to have to do it. And, and that really is an important theme, I think, for people today. Even today, there are there's organizations like CI in existence, and we will help you, but if you don't take the step to do something that's kind of unusual, that your neighbors and relatives may regard as kind of strange, uh, you're not going to have a chance to live again. You've got you've to take that step for yourself to some degree. Yes, so I wanted to ask you this on that topic precisely, because for example, my wife, when I originally shared with her the, yeah. the idea about cryonics about a year, a year and a half ago, she thought that it sounded very creepy. How, how do we sort of break through that sort of initial sort of feeling of repulsion or, or kind of pushing back that people seem to have naturally to feel like? And, what should we do to, to combat that kind of attitude, perhaps? Well, one way my father used to do it, and I refer back to him because he was kind of the master at describing these things and did it better than I do, even though I'm a communicator for a living, uh, was with humor. And you read his books and there's lots of jokes in there, some subtle, yes. some kind of corny. Uh, but, for example, my father said, you know, being frozen is a horrible thing. It's just that the alternative is even worse. Uh, 
And he said, you know, I don't like the idea of being frozen, but being in the ground with worms eating me is, is a lot more creepy. Yeah. So the truth of it is, um, I think people don't like to deal with death. Death is a horrible, horrible thing, a final thing that's existed throughout human history, and until now, people had no hope of doing anything about it. Yeah. So what's the rational reaction to this horrible thing you can't do anything about? Try to avoid thinking about it, uh, or create a mythology about it, but we don't need to spend a lot of time talking about that. So to get involved in cryonics, I think people really need to face up to the fact that you know, the great likelihood is that while these great advances in medical technology are going to happen, while people are going to live very much longer times in the future, it's probably not going to happen in time for them. And then you have one choice, one way to get you from here to there, you know, one kind of ambulance to the future, and that's cryonics. Yes, and I have to share with you that our journey together, me and my wife, was something similar. I, I tried to use both humor and, and also a little bit of education to teach her about the process and also ask her to seriously consider the alternative. Yeah. Like, is it better to go in the ground and be eaten by worms or is it better to stay in cold, you know, in long-term storage in minus 195, 96 degrees? Mm. And, you know, it may not sound very, uh, you know, attractive, but it's the best given the alternatives. It's like the least worst of all the options, at least. And this is how me and her, we started with, oh, this is very creepy, mm. to, oh, maybe it's worth considering to, okay, I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think actually, uh, on the occasion of me arriving here, here to interview you, a couple of days ago, we had the final conversation where she said, okay, fine, I'm doing it with you, yeah. and I've decided. And I was like, thank you. So yeah. it took maybe a year and a half of yeah. that sort of ongoing conversation yeah. and lots of jokes and lots of sort of tidbits of information yeah. and considerations of the alternative. Because she was like, for example, I don't want some technician at Alcor or at the Cryonics Institute to be handling my body. I was like, so do you prefer if it's a mortician? What's the difference? Somebody will, right? If I'm not there, and I mean, I'm not a professional, so probably even if I'm there, I'll be watching. I wouldn't be handling, or if I'm dead and you're there, you wouldn't be handling my body, you'd be watching. And knowing you, you probably wouldn't even be watching. So you wouldn't even know what's happening with my body. So I'd better be in the hands of people that I know, like, and trust, rather than some mortician that I've never heard or seen of in my life, and have the prospect of actually waking up a few decades or hundred or centuries later. So to me, there's a very clear and definite benefit upside, whereas the, the alternative is only guaranteed nothingness. I think that's right, and I think there's a big upside for people who want to become cryonics patients and their families from the hope that it gives you too. Uh, you know, I'm 62, and so I'm getting up there a little bit. Um, I'm at the peak of my career. Uh, physically, I don't feel I've lost a thing. I exercise harder than I ever did, and in part, I do that because I want to stay in, in great fantastic. physical condition. But, you know, barring medical advances, if things go really well, I've got another 30 years, and probably not more than another 10 years uh, 
where I could be really productive. So, um, I mean, I can see two terrible things coming out of that. One, less terrible, but still bad. If this were the world of the future where I could look forward to 150 or more years, you know, maybe I'd be thinking, well, I've mastered this career and it's time to, to start a second career. It's too late for me to start a second career in our world. You know, by the time I got good at it, or long before I got really good at it, uh, I'd be too old. Um, and I wouldn't be able to carry it on. And secondly, you know, I'm facing the end in a time that is considerably shorter than what I've lived so far. Uh, I don't overstate the prospects of cryonics. There's a lot of ifs involved, but I know that it gives me a chance. So it gives me hope, and that's important, and that's not creepy at all. Secondly, for the family, and I think about the case of my father. You know, he lived to 92, um, and at the end, we were, trying we were trying really hard to figure out ways to extend his life, and you know, one thing in our society is that at 92, it's hard to keep the doctors interested even, and we were working hard at that, and we failed at that, but we were also working really hard to provide him with the best possible freezing by being prepared in every way to getting hospice involved, but not only that, me bothering them so they let me know where they were all the time, and, and the hospice people showed up moments before he expired, so we had him immediately declared legally dead, to having 24-hour nursing for the last few days, because we knew it was near the end, mm -hmm. it wasn't very expensive, but it was able. we were able then to really be on top of the situation. My wife even talked to the fire department as a backup and said, you know, Mr. Edinger is a decorated World War II veteran and we'd really like this help and explained it and they had a special sign on their wall in case they got a call from us. We didn't need them as it turned out, but we did these things. And the net result was we began the freezing of my father within a minute after he was declared dead. Very important in terms of limiting freezing damage. And so, you know, the next day after it was all done, I mean, I felt horrible. My father and I were very close. Uh, but at the same time, I felt really good that I'd given him a chance, and I'm actually feeling a little bit emotional about it right now, and that I'd done my best and I'd done what he would have wanted. Uh, and so it was an awful lot better than if he had just died. I have to agree with you entirely. And here's the other sort of a barrier that we had to overcome with my wife, because one of her problems um, for considering signing up for cryopreservation was she was saying, well, I don't want to wake up 100 years later with all my family gone. Yeah. And my response to that was very simple. Look, if you sign up, then we have to get your mom. Yeah. If we get your mom, your dad's going to sign up. If we get your mom and your dad to sign up, your sisters and everybody else is going to follow. So very simple solution. You don't want to be without your family? Great. Let's sign them up too. And let's be all together. Like, what's yeah. wrong with that? And of course, the key person to sign up for that would be my mother-in-law or her mom. Yeah. So, so now we're going to go to that process to see if we, can, if we can convince her. And I think if we can make that sort of breakthrough there, it will be easier for the rest of the family. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are many, many families who are all involved in cryonics, and sometimes not. There are cases where husbands are involved and wives are not. Uh, it seems that men get 
more positive about chronics than women typically. Maybe it's an ego thing, who knows? You know, uh, I could have signed up myself a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah. And because, and right now it's not going to cost us anything because we already have had life insurance for about 10 years now with my wife. So all we need to do is just change the, the conditions on the life insurance and make sure there's enough money in which there is for cryopreservation. The reason I haven't done it though is because I wanted to be with her. Mm. So, uh, for me personally, it was important to be with her and to to do it together because I knew once I sign up, then there's going to be less incentive for us to have that ongoing conversation and for her to eventually change her mind. Mm. And that would have sort of entrenched the differences mm. rather than bridged them. And I'm very happy I didn't do it before. And now I'm also optimistic that maybe we would be able to break ground with the rest of our family. Or at least so that is my evil plan. We'll see how it's going to unfold. Yeah, it's an interesting strategy. I hope it works. <laughs> I hope so too. David, however, I got lots of audience questions submitted sure. in preparation for this conversation with you today. So I would intermix them in our conversation. Sure. And so, for example, let us start with something very basic. Let us define the term cryonics and how is it different from freezing? Or is it? Well, cryonics is really the name of a movement and a process and, and an idea. And um, having said all that, I guess I'll describe it as uh, the idea that you can cryopreserve, preserve people at very low temperatures immediately after legal death in the hope that they can be revived in the future when medical technology permits it. Um, so. You, know, you can freeze people for a lot of reasons, and today cryonics does not involve freezing, it involves vitrification, which is freezing not into ice, but into a glass-like substance. And why is vitrification better than straight-up freezing? It doesn't cause the same degree of damage in terms of the formation of ice crystals, which has always been the classic uh, freezing problem. Do you do any of that research and development in-house? Or do you outsource that? In other words, how do you update your processes and yeah. procedures to perform the perfusion and the process of vitrification? Yeah. So CI's done it both ways at various times, and CI's also relied in part on research that has been um, commissioned by the Immortalist Society, which is a tax-exempt organization that is really unrelated to CI, but also founded by my father originally, and shares many common members. And um, IS has funded a lot of the research. And in both cases, the research has been open source, published, available to everybody, um, which I think creates cost advantages for CI and for its members. Um, and the research has been very practically oriented in a number of respects, seeking what's the best perfusion solutions, and CI's been through several generations of them, including vitrification solutions now being used uh, you know, what are the appropriate concentrations? When ought to be applied? What is the appropriate timing of cool down? Uh, I think Andy described earlier what our timing is, and that's based on research to try to determine what minimizes the damage. Uh, you know, what are the most important steps of the process? And one thing we learned is if you have one hour of warm ischemia, meaning the patient dies, there's no oxygen, oxygenated blood flowing to the brain, and enough time passes without cooling, that is the thing that causes the most damage. So interestingly, the most important thing you can do is not the technical things, which we do, 
but is practical steps to make sure that you begin the process as quickly as you can. Mm -hmm. And we spend a lot of time working with members to try to make that happen. Speaking of that process and procedures and research and development, you know, I was just reading your father's book and I couldn't help it but notice that, and he was, he had an amazing amount of foresight, but he was very optimistic and it's very easy for me to say now he was very optimistic looking retrospectively because if I'm looking forward from today, I tend to be judged by the same measure and, and people often tell me, well, you're very optimistic and I probably would make the same uh, over prediction. But w is it fair to say that the pace of development of the processes and the procedures on the one hand, as well as the adoption by the white population of cryonics have been considerably slower than your father was expecting and or hoping for. Well, let me talk about adoption and then processes um, and then give you a caveat. So I'll go on for a while. All um, right. In terms of adoption, yeah, my father thought this is obviously a good idea. And I people, agree. And people are going to adopt it en masse. And as someone who grew up in it, I also think it's obviously a good idea. So I've had to spend time thinking about well, why haven't more people thought that? And, and I've already given kind of my take on that, which is that people don't want to think about death. So my father, certainly, as I described, first he thought it would, the idea would be raised publicly without him. Then he thought people would start organizations without him, and, and he was wrong on both those fronts. And mm -hmm. certainly he was wrong about the pace of adoption of cryonics. Having said that, in the 1990s, things picked up. And while, you know, it's still, you know, dead in the ground, uh, one million cryonics one, or some ratio like that, uh, the ratio's gotten a lot better than it used to be, and our growth is faster, and, and the vast majority of our patients have come in the last 15 years, even though this organization's been around for 40, and I think there's a reason for that that argues for faster growth in the future. How that, many patients do you have altogether? 124, 125th patient uh, will be here next week, already uh, process has already begun, hasn't come in here yet. Mm -hmm. uh, you see, that's still not a big number for me. It's way too small than I would have expected and hoped for. I agree. It's that million to one problem I just mentioned. And, and I think there's really a second important reason for that. that. I'm glad you said that. I think, personally, there are probably millions of people in the world, maybe low millions, but millions, who have heard of cryonics, have said, that makes sense, and then didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. CI gets lots of calls from people who say my mother, my grandmother curious, died. Cryo-curious. Well, cryo-curious or even cryo-convinced but not cryo-committed if we, ah, we want well. well to coin some yes. phrases. Um, <laughs> because we get a lot of calls from people who say my mother died a week ago, my grandmother died two weeks ago, what can you do? Mm -hmm. And it's too late. Uh, and the problem is two weeks ago, my goodness. People, people don't because people die unexpectedly. Uh, people get very sick and, and it's hard to get people to focus on something like cryonics at that time. Yeah. And so you really need to, at a time when, it, when death is not imminent, take steps, go to cryonics.org, if I can put that plug in. Sure, of and, course. Uh, on the web, read about us, commit, join, sign a contract, and make sure you figured out how you're going to make sure this happens. Because that's the difference. And I'm convinced that if everybody who liked the idea took those steps, we'd have thousands of patients today. Okay, let me grab that thought and, and okay. ask you, let's say, 
we have members of our audience right now who are yeah. committed and they're interested and they're serious in joining. What do I, what do, I do and how do I do it? Well, Tell me what's the process. Let's say I go to your website or yeah. I pick up the phone. What happens next? What should I do? How do I become a member? Yeah. You become a member, you become a lifetime member by paying $1,250 per family. Per family? Per family, not just an individual. Does it matter how many siblings or kids do you have? Or? That's right, it does not. And I think we're pretty flexible in the definition of a family. Um, does that include the pets too? <laughs> and yeah, if people have pets that they want to have frozen. Because a lot of people consider yeah. pets members of the family. There's no extra membership fee for pets. And uh, some people who think that is too much become annual members. And they pay $75 initially plus $120 per year. Um, and to be um, cryopreserved by CI, the minimum fee is $28,000. Um, it's 35 if you're an annual, not a lifetime member. It's 35 in an emergency where there may be more of a commitment for CI. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I think that's remarkable is that the price that my father set for the Cranach Institute in 1976 was $28,000. Mm -hmm. We have had zero increase in price in 40 years. Mm -hmm. And you tell me how many products you can point out that zero. was true for, except for a few electronics products, uh, though they weren't around 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and the reason is, I think it's, it, there's two important reasons. One is that CI has relentlessly worked to innovate, to try to become better, but also cheaper. And these storage units that Andy's talked about that are right behind us, you know, are the fourth generation, and they're probably really, if you count not just 1.0 and 2.0, but 2.1 and 2.2, they're probably about the eighth generation, mm -hmm. uh, do a very, very good job of holding, uh, of insulating, and therefore there's very little liquid nitrogen boil off, and long term, that's the only expense for a patient. Yeah, it's incredible. We have probably 220 degrees Celsius difference between the temperature we're in right now here and the inside of these uh, yeah. units, and there's not even a condensation no, on them. It's not cold, not in the yeah, slightest. They're not, yeah, it, it's, not in the slightest. So, so it's much cheaper than it was when the organization started. And the other thing is our business model. CI, as I mentioned, is a nonprofit volunteer organization. Uh, so we have very limited salaried staff, Andy is it, except for occasional part-time help, uh, and we have lots of people who are very active in the organization, who are successful professionals, who help out and use their expertise to help out. You know, I'm a lawyer, um, and without tooting my own horn too much, I don't think the audience is gonna hire me very likely, I'm an antitrust lawyer. Uh, <laughs> I get um, $825 an hour uh, for my paying customers. Um, Cryonics organizations could not afford me if I charged. But my personal work for CI, and I don't do it all, but I manage it all, is for free. Uh, and I'm far from unique in that regard. We have corporate CEOs on our board who provide expertise on those business issues. We have CPAs on our board. We have investment advisors. And so a lot of what we do is no charge, and it's not because people are altruistic. It's because people are committed that cryonics work for them and for their families. And so that way we're able to operate, I think, very stably uh, for the long run. And you need a cryonics organization that's gonna be around for the long run. And I think 40 years with no price increases uh, says a lot about that. So you mentioned uh, 
about $30,000 provided it's not an emergency of some sort. Yeah. And so let's say the worst case scenario would be a $35,000 uh, fee. But what's the, one of the, the, the questions people ask me to ask you is, what's the money going towards? Well, it goes for the cost of the initial cryopreservation, um, the perfusion and so on. And then the rest is kept so that the income on it can pay for the long-term storage and maintenance. And of course, we don't know how long people are gonna have to be frozen for, mm -hmm. so you wanna be able to maintain them indefinitely. Mm -hmm. So you need a capital fund, uh, the income of which can be used to maintain the bodies indefinitely, and that's what uh, a large part of that pretty small sum so goes So a portion to. of the fund goes for the procedure itself, and then another portion goes for the fund, which basically is the sustainability fund that provides for ongoing expenses indefinitely. Right, right. I should add that those fees are for a patient who is treated here in Detroit. Mm -hmm. If a patient dies remotely, and many do, uh, there can be additional expenses ranging from nothing in some cases to most commonly a few thousand dollars for the assistance of a funeral director. And in every case, we provide information and assistance to them. What funeral directors do is very much like perfusion, and um, and so you know we can aid them in even doing the perfusion offsite if need be. Uh, up to uh, there's this organization called Suspended Animation, which is a cryonics organization which does standby perfusions, and their fee is about sixty thousand dollars. So some members, and I think they do it really for several cryonics organizations. They mm -hmm. do all the remotes. Mm -hmm. um, some members choose that, others use funeral directors, others um, get assistance from standby organizations of our members in various locations. We have a Cranics UK, a group in Toronto, and more are forming, and we are about to come out with a standardized standby kit for such groups. And some of them don't charge at all. Uh, so the costs of having these things done remotely can be, uh, you know, very modest, much more modest than our full fee, um, depending on the circumstances and the choices that a patient makes. Yeah, that was actually one of the follow-up questions that I had that you kind of preempted almost completely, was, and, and that was bro broken into two parts, like, what about us in Canada yeah. who are very interested in, in, in being cryopreserved? What can you offer to us? And then, even one step further away, I have lots of people from the United Kingdom, from Germany, from other parts of Europe, and even the rest of the world who are interested in potentially becoming members. What do you suggest we should do? Well, first of all, that's not a new issue for us. Almost a third of our members are outside the United States, and 30-some of our patients of the 125 are from outside the United States, including as far away as Asia. So, uh, you know, we are used to dealing with those kinds of issues and, and do so all the time. Um, you know, we have dealt with the naughty issue of what does $28,000 mean if somebody's working in a different currency and, mm -hmm. and figure out how to do that and so on uh, to, to deal with those kinds of fluctuations and that problem. Um, but even more importantly, we're working with, you know, groups of our members in various locations to form these standby organizations so that they can work together and help each other. Um, and that's yet another solution. Uh, there are also 
Um, in Asia, and I don't want to be specific, there are groups that have come to us who want to work with us, um, form their own affiliated Kranix organizations, and we're in talks with people uh, on those kinds of topics. So, you know, we are a worldwide organization and becoming more so. Let me go back a little bit about the question pertaining to the speed of progress, because we addressed one half of it and we kind of... You're right. I, I went off. I digress. So me... I, dig I digressed you, too. <laughs> so, so let's talk about the speed of progress. And we already covered the adoption issue, but what about the speed of progress? And that would be pertaining both with respect to the procedure and the sort of perpetual improvement and of, of the efficiency and the speed and the quality of the... Uh, preservation and vitrification, as well as the eventual long-term storage. Right. I mean, you guys have very modest budget, I imagine, compared to the, the scientific potential that we can focus on these issues so that we have better processes, better storage facilities, better storage technologies, and once that scale reaches up mm -hmm. a certain level of adoption, it will be also infinitely cheaper, so everybody yeah. wins. Right, though I think on the storage side, you know, we are pretty darn good, and maybe you could get better, but... Uh, I have to agree. There's not a lot of room to improve there. Yes, I have to agree, um, but but the procedure, perhaps, and, yeah. and the rest of the process could okay. use a serious improvement. Well, I, there's, there's more to be done, and we're doing it. The problem is, you know, you know, it, it's it's hard to be able to tell how much room for improvement there is because it depends in part on having the best possible freezing technology, and in part on having the technology for revival, which is going to be a function of overall improvements in medicine. And, you know, so how, how short are we on the first half? It's hard to tell without the second half. Having, having said for that... Example, well, go ahead or I can add more. For example, one, one way of, of sort of benchmarking our performance would be if it's possible at all to do an fMRI before and after preservation and sort of compare the differences or the damage that was incurred yeah. during that process. And once we have a database of, let's say, the earliest cryopreserved yeah. patients, which we can probably do fMRIs on them, and the latest one, and we can sort of compare the baseline and see whether for the last 50 years or so we have gotten any better in that process or not. Well, I, I think we're pretty sure we've gotten better because the research we have done uh, is all based on evaluating what happens through experiments using different rates of freezing, using different uh, solutions and so on. And, and we know we're doing these things in a way now that, that improves and limits the freezing damage. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to test that, by the way, and that's another controversial issue, actually. Mm -hmm. um, you know, brain slices tell you something, but it's not a functioning brain. MRIs of a whole brain tell you more more difficult to do. Uh, we have some eminent biologists advising us who say we ought to be doing evoked response testing, which means, you know, when you flash something on a, on a retina, does it show it? Well, but that requires you to freeze the brain pretty well and the eye. So it raises some other issues. Um, and so these are among the things the research is grappling with. Uh, it's getting better, but, you know, the, you're absolutely right that the funds are limited. Uh, it's partly a function of the lack of a widespread interest in cryonics. It's partly a function, if I can add something to the space program, going belly up, because that's where most of the money for cryobiological research was done at one time. Sure, yeah, that's, that's a fantastic point, because yeah. my personal concern is that 
honestly, it has not progressed as far as your dad was expecting. And honestly, it has not progressed and it doesn't seem to be progressing as fast as I would have hoped it would in the last 10 years or so. But you know, that's also true on the flip side. When I was a kid, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey came out, you know, yes. and uh, we're not there today. We're mm -hmm. well past 2001. You know, more and more we hear, where are those flying cars we were promised? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, in other ways, things have happened more quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, that's true in medicine, too. In 1970, the United States launched a war on cancer. The goal was, I think, to cure cancer in 10 or 15 years, and we're far from that today. Having said that, there are reasons to believe that major, major improvements are coming. And having said that, while it's very hard to predict timing, everybody who predicted things wouldn't happen, would not happen at all, has been proven wrong. And my father had lots of examples of what he called the can't-do experts. And I'll give you two or three, because I love these. Uh, one is H.G. Um, Wells, who of course was a famous science yes. fiction writer and visionary, said that heavier-than-air flight would always be impossible. Do you know when he said that? 1902. Exactly. I read the book yesterday, so <laughs> I remember that exactly. Okay, a year I read before, the book yesterday. A year before the Wright Brothers, and you probably yes. know the next one, too. Yes. I'll, I'll should, and and uh, you know who it was who said in 1940 that there'd never be more than six computers in the world? Watson. Exactly, the founder of IBM. Yes. So, uh, you know, people who have predicted that things wouldn't happen have always ultimately been wrong. Um, now, we'd like to be farther along today in all these respects, sure, but is there reason to doubt that the damage that's occurring today is, is uh, curable by future technology? Uh, you know, we don't know for sure, but I don't think there's strong reason to doubt it. I think there's an unlimited potential or a vast potential for medical technology, and uh, Cryonics is still the best bet in town. You know, my father said sometimes it's, some people will not be satisfied until somebody has been frozen and revived and lived forever. Uh, by its nature, Cryonics is a bet, and until it works, in the future, down, road, down the road a ways, nobody's going to know for sure. Yeah, but you're betting on life, whereas the alternative is a guaranteed death. That's exactly right. So you right. know what? I would take the bet, even if it's a low probability of success, there is still better than zero whereas the alternative is zero. So you're still better off taking a bet than not. That's at least in my calculations. Uh, that's exactly right. And how much better than zero? It's hard to say. I think it's a pretty good shot. I think anything but, better than zero is better than zero. Well, that's right. But, but there's no, those people who are pessimistic can't really point to evidence that leads them there. We know, for example, that not too many years ago, they used to say, if you're three minutes without oxygen to the brain and you are dead. Yeah. Well, except they started reviving people all the time after more than three minutes. Uh, and just this year, they started doing human trials on suspended animation. Right. So, so the reasons for pessimism are usually rebutted. That's the lesson of history. Yeah. And I think the same is likely true of cryonics, though nobody can be sure. I agree, but what you mentioned leads me to another two of the most popular audience questions sure. that I've gotten here, and that is, what's the guarantee, the guarantee it will work, which I think we kind yeah. of covered, and have we brought somebody back? Yeah. So would you like to very quickly address those two, perhaps, because time is advancing? Well, there is no guarantee that it'll work, and we're real clear on that, and uh, I think we've talked about that. Um, 
And uh, you know, why haven't we brought somebody back? Because that's going to require technology that can one, cure freezing damage, and two, or vitrification damage, and two, cure what's ailed you. And most of the people who are being frozen are pretty old, and they're gonna need uh, some real improvement in, in technology dealing with aging mm -hmm. before they're gonna get brought back. So it's not gonna happen overnight. Uh, but the nice thing about being in liquid nitrogen is not a whole lot's happening to you. You can afford to be patient. And we have built an organization, can't be sure of this either, but we built an organization that we believe can be here for the long haul until technology develops. And again, it may be imperfect and it may be not guaranteed, but it's better than the alternative, so that's good enough for me. Uh, I'll take my chance rather than guaranteed nothingness forever. So, But let me ask you a couple of other interesting details that I discovered and that are also, by the way, popular audience questions, and that is, number one, the fact that you guys don't seem to be taking any neuropatients, mm -hmm. and number two is your policy on pets. Okay. People well, love their pets, so yeah. they want to find out. Well, we take pets uh, of members um, because people want to have their pets with them, and so we do that. Uh, we do not um, take neuropatients, um, and the reason is, I wouldn't argue that we think it's a bad thing to do, but there's a lot of negative publicity that's occurred in connection with neuropatients, and it creates a lot of that creepiness reaction, rightly or wrongly. And so our judgment has been um, that it's just not a good idea, so we don't do that. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're so inexpensive already that there's, we don't believe there's a need to limit people to neuros in order to make Cranix affordable. Uh, Cranix at 28,000 per patient is affordable for almost everybody, especially recognizing that even that can be financed through life insurance, and then you're talking about you know a few hundred dollars a year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the, the audio, another uh, audience questions, which kind of pertains to your price, um, uh, our price conversation here is, the question with volunteers. So somebody sent yeah. me this this question about, you know, the difference between the the work or the quality of the work done by professionals and yeah. by volunteers, and their sort of implying was that when you have people doing volunteer work, perhaps the quality of the work done naturally tends to deteriorate as opposed to people who are professionals. Well, first, first of all, volunteers are not doing the crowd preservation. Andy, our facility manager, has been working here for about 30 years and knows about as much about cryonics technologies as anybody. He's grown up with those technologies and with my father, innovated a lot of those technologies. And he's paid employee and we work with other people who are. It's also the case though that where we use volunteers, we use people at the top of their profession. I mean, I don't want to brag, but what other, whatever lawyers are being paid by other organizations, I'm sure are not at my level. I mean, I'm in my field, I'm a national guy, and you know, charge a lot of money, and um, and have spent a career developing what I think is an extremely successful practice. So I don't think anybody would suggest that my volunteer efforts are poorer than somebody who's paid <laughs> out of pocket. And that's true across the board for us. I mean, we have, you know, very very skilled people. We have people advising us on research who are considered the fathers of their fields in research. 
we have you know, financial professionals who are extremely skilled. We have corporate CEOs, as I mentioned, and they don't have less incentive than somebody who's paid. I would much rather have somebody like me or like other people in cryonics. I'm doing this because I want my father and my mother and my grandmother to come back. You tell me, is that more of an incentive or is it a few more bucks per hour? <laughs> I really think that our business model is more effective. Now, does everybody volunteer? No, I mean, a small fraction of our members volunteer. But that fraction you know, is more than enough to make a real difference here, to perform essential functions and perform them at a very high level. Um, I think, frankly, by the way, I'm a, certainly a believer in for-profit system, and most of my, many of my clients are for-profit. I do a lot of healthcare work where a lot of people are not-for-profit, hospitals and so on. Mm -hmm. but, um, but in cryonics, where, as you pointed out, things have been slower than people hope for, I think anybody who's trying to make money faces a danger of getting distracted by that. You know, you've got to be in something for the long haul where the big dollars just aren't here and likely aren't going to be here for a while. And so you need a business model, and you need people in that business model who are motivated, even if there is no profit to be made. Uh, and, you know, my situation, if, if we never added another patient, it's not going to happen. If we added a patient this, we're adding a patient this week, we're adding patients all the time. But if we never added another patient, would I go away and say, oh, there's no money to be made? No, I've still got my father and my mother and my grandmother here. Yeah, you're and as long no as we've got what. the capital yeah. to keep this joint running, I'm going to make sure that they're around so we can try to get them revived. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other level of commitment than a few people getting paid who come in for a paycheck and then leave. And I would much rather have, again, highly expert volunteers who are willing to do this um, for the benefit of themselves and their families than somebody getting a paycheck. Uh, from an organization that may or may not, you know, be, have the volume to, to pay as many people as it would otherwise need to pay. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just talking about CI, I'm talking about any cryonics organization. We've had foreign groups come to us and wanted to affiliate with us, and I remember one, I won't even tell you the country. They did a business model and it showed them with 20 patients in the first year and making money. And, and I had no problem with their being for profit, but I said, come back to me with a business model that shows you with no patients in the first year, and you're still able to sustain, and we might be interested, because if you're not looking at this for the long haul, and if you're not prepared to go slowly in a country where there's essentially no knowledge of cryonics in, in the particular case, um, it's not realistic. Uh, I hope you do great, but you know this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. That's yeah. been established by now. You know, back in the 1960s, the get-rich-quick guys would come to come to our house. I remember them when I was a kid, and my father would send them away, and none of them got rich. Cryonics uh, <laughs> isn't for that, um, and so I think our motivation and our model is in the right place. That's 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 excellent. So. Let me let me give you another concern that was submitted to me, and that's sure. securing against vandalism, theft, or sabotage. Yeah. So people are concerned, they're here, let's say they've had very good uh, vitrification done on them, they've been successfully placed with the minimum damage in long-term storage. How do they, in other words, what kind of measures or action do you do to minimize vandalism, theft, or sabotage? Oh. 
we've worried a lot about that, and not just those, but you know, natural disasters, fires. Um, we spend lots of times on board meetings worried about that. As you can imagine, people are worried about themselves and their families. And so, um, number one, we have state-of-the-art alarm systems that connect to police and fire. We're very near fire department and the police department and connect to local members. Uh, we have video camera systems, which the board can view and does real time, real time remotely to make sure things are okay. Mm -hmm. We have somebody here almost all the time. Uh, we have units. You know, you could take a mallet to this thing and it wouldn't have any effect on it. If somebody, for somebody to do damage to these storage units, you know, they would have to be the Russian army and not on vacation. It's, it's a, a current reference of this week uh, with what's going on in the Ukraine. But, um, you know, you'd have to have serious impl implements in order to do any harm here. Um, we have a sprinkler system, an automatic sprinkler system. So, you know, we have taken a lot of steps. And if anybody has a bright idea about any more, we are open to them because everybody wants to avoid not just the likely problems, there really aren't any, but the unlikely problems, because mm -hmm. we need to be here for a long time and avoid all those problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, let me ask you for a couple of alternatives that have been proposed in the last few years, and most notably, that's the one by Ken Hayworth, which is chemical brain preservation. Okay. Uh, the idea namely being that if you can, first of all, that uh, under electron microscopy, or when you view the brain tissue samples under electron microscope, you, you, don't see, you see a lot more damage than with other techniques that are commonly used right now. Let's say, for example, with an fMRI machine or something like that. Mm. And also the other benefit is that it allows you to store the brain at room temperature. So generally speaking, without going into the details too much, because we're really starting to run out of time, but what's your take on alternative technologies, and are you open to consider perhaps any of those alternatives, such as chemical brain preservation? Well, I mean, CI exists to produce a result. Um, we are not married to an ideology or a process, and so we're certainly open. I mean, my sense, and I'm not CI's leading technical expert on this, but my sense is that alternatives like chemical preservation are, you know, even today, not as robustly supported as crowd preservation is. Uh, you know, they supposedly currently work well for a very small tissue. Well, right, but but you know, so right crowd preservation has had its limits, but organs have been frozen and revived. Uh, whole creatures yes. of various sorts have been frozen and yes. revived. So it's yes. more than just slices. Yeah. And uh, so I would say it's premature to start offering something like that, but we're open to, to new ideas as the evidence develops. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that the Chemical Brain Preservation Foundation actually has an award for the first uh, mouse brain that would be preserved because mm -hmm. we haven't even gotten to the scale of mouse brains yet. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's an interesting uh, competition that I'm watching myself carefully, actually. Um, would you happen to share if you have any sort of views or relevant ideas about transhumanism? Because a large part of my audience consists of people who would consider themselves to be either transhumanists or H plus or any of the other labels yeah. uh, 
on our community. So what's your take on transhumanism? Well, you know, my father wrote a book in 1970, I think, called Man into Superman, which some people say, I don't know the history, was really the first book about transhumanism and talked about a lot of things that people started talking about a lot more uh, three, four decades later. Um, so in cryonics, I, th I think cryonics is, is kind of inextricably intertwined with transhumanism because unless you're going to have radical improvements in medical technology, there's not a lot of point to cryonics. Uh, if, if aging is not going to be, um, you know, dramatically extended, there's not a lot of point to cryonics. And so a lot of things are going to come with that. Um, so to that extent, uh, you know, I think transhumanists, um, cryonicists should, should believe in a, in a good part of what transhumanists believe in and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're a transhumanist and you think all these things are coming and the singularity is coming, um, I would take you back to our conversation of a few minutes ago. Where are the flying cars and where's the cure for cancer? Don't be so sure it's going to happen in your lifetime. Um, you know, there are some famous transhumanists whose names I won't mention who predict things by 2020 and 2030, and I kind of wonder if they or do that. 2045, yeah. They, they, I kind of wonder if, no, they, these, these guys do it earlier because they won't be around by 2045. I kind of wonder if in part, unconsciously or consciously, they do it because it's going to take that to be soon enough for them before they, they Actually, die. Actually, Ray Kurzweil and Terry Grossman, they both have these bridges that they call. Yeah. So by the 2020s, we would have the first bridge, which would allow us to reach to the 2030s. There are all different kinds of technologies or breakthroughs that we're hoping for right. that would carry us forward another 10 years and then another 10 years. And so we reach a point, hopefully, uh, which Aubrey de Grey calls on longevity escape velocity, yeah. at which our life expectancy is increasing faster yeah. uh, than, right. than our... Uh, Absolutely, and I hope that happens. I hope it happens for me, you know. I'm 62, and one reason I get up and do that elliptical machine You're furiously age, every much. morning, right, every morning is because I would love not to have to be frozen, you know, as my father said, it's... And you um, look as fit as him yeah. too, by the way, yeah. so... Um, but... I also know that people's predictions as to timing are worth very little. Mm. Um, the human body is, got, is, is vastly more complex than people used to think, and um, we just don't know how long these things are going to take. And I would say for people, especially in their 40s and 50s and 60s and older, um, if you're counting on something other than cryonics extending your life, um, you are not covering your bets. So perhaps, David, this may be actually the best time to bring our conversation to an end because time has advanced substantially anyway. And my traditional last question that I always ask of all my guests is, what's the most important thing? What's the one thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this conversation with you today? I mean, the most important thing is Take steps and be prepared. Go to cryonics.org, ask your questions. If you're satisfied, join the organization, make preparations, because terrible things can happen when they're unexpected. Uh, Andy mentioned to me just today that a funeral director who had worked with us some years ago died of a massive heart attack in his 50s the other day. Um, unfortunately, these things happen, 
and you know you really need to be prepared and like in my father's case we were really prepared and we maximized his chances uh, if you're not prepared you're not going to get frozen at all so you just need to take those steps and there's a big community of people here who are going to work with you and help you if you take them but you got to start yourself and if you don't do that you know as my father said one thing he can guarantee is that uh, uh, if you don't get frozen uh, certainly in the near run, you're going to die. <laughs> Be prepared. Yep. David Ettinger, I very much appreciate that message, and I want to thank you for having us over today at the Cryonics Institute. Thanks thank very you. much. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you.